Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. This is the third installment in the Why Bitcoin Now series, which takes a closer look at Bitcoin in the context of larger macroeconomic forces, such as the pandemic and geopolitical moves happening in crypto. The topic of today's episode is the history of digital currency. Here to discuss are Aaron Van Weerdum, technical editor at Bitcoin Magazine, and Finn Brunton, the author of Digital Cash, the unknown history of the anarchists, utopians, and technologists who created cryptocurrency. Welcome, Aaron and Finn. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having us. To really understand the history of digital currency, we need to know who the people were who were interested in creating digital currency. Who were some of these original groups of people that were working on this and what were their motivations? It's a really interesting community. And I think one of the challenges for us now, seeing how Bitcoin has evolved and is evolving, is to be able to look back and understand the diversity of motivations that that sort of originally brought them to this. Because everyone, I think, who was working in computer science or early network computing in the 1960s and 70s, they already knew that online transactions were going to be a thing. People were already thinking about in depth what it meant to buy and sell online, what it would mean to have a receipt or sign your name to something or exchange tokens of value. And they also knew that there were ways that they could make it work that would be huge improvements over, say, credit card transactions, which were already existed in a a much earlier format. So when we look back at people like, uh, just to put out a few names, uh, David Chaum, um, who was one of the sort of uh, great early pioneers of digital cash, uh, Timothy C. May, uh, cypherpunk and uh, sort of anarcho-capitalist slash crypto-anarchist, Hal Finney, who has obviously become very famous uh, retrospectively for his role in the development of Bitcoin. We see a, a mix of people who are all trying to figure out how to solve the problem of exchanging digital tokens over what would become the internet in a way that would allow them to create not just commerce, but the kinds of commerce that they wanted to see in the world. And and I think that maybe kind of brings us to some of their motivations. Some of them were looking for ways that they could exchange existing territorial currencies, but do so anonymously and securely online, the same way that you would pay for something with physical cash. And by territorial, do you mean fiat currencies? 
Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, basically currencies, you know, minted and issued by the country you happen to be in. So, yeah, finding a way to sort of exchange dollars just as you would by withdrawing dollars in cash and, and paying with them. And I wanted to use that territorial distinction because there were others who had similar interests in the technology, but with the goal of producing tokens that were native to the network, right? That were like sort of particular to transnational computer networks and would, and would sort of draw their characteristics from that new context. So I think it's, it's we can go through a, a bunch of these different characters and they're, they're different kinds of uh, interests and goals, but I think it's really useful for us to start with that premise that everybody knew that this was coming. And the question was, in what form does it come? What are, what are your goals? What are your visions for the world that you want the money to carry out? I think there were sort of two main drives. I, I think that that sort of uh, led to this, this development. And I think one half, this is really exemplified by, for example, David Chaum, who was the first to start talking about this, is that if digital, if money becomes digital, that could have a very unpleasant consequence of making <laughs> every transaction traceable, which means that there might be some database somewhere that's exactly uh, details who's paying who when. And, you know, this could be, this could become like a big panopticon, right? Which is a scary idea, I think, or at least he thinks, of course, and I happen to agree with that. I think that's <laughs> that's a very scary idea that someone would have. It. Because if you don't have privacy, that really affects your behavior. That if I, even if you're not sure that someone's watching you, like that's the trick behind the panopticon, right? Just the idea that someone might be watching you, that's a very unfree idea. And you can't really be, be yourself and develop yourself. And, you know, we could get into examples where, where this, uh, you know, let's say you're a homosexual in a country where the government doesn't uh, have a too fund a perception on homosexuality, then, you know, you, you cannot buy certain things in certain stores because you may get government agents behind you. And keep in mind, being since this is digital, it's not even just today's government you need to worry about like if there's a database then it could be the government 10 years into the future that doesn't like homosexuals and it's you know so that's this panopticon is very or david chalm at least thought this was a very scary idea so this was really the, the sort of privacy angle and then you had another motivation which was there's something wrong with our money there's something wrong with fiat currency for example hayek wrote about uh wrote about this a lot like the austrian business cycle and how t- the, the money itself and the way central banks manage it and, and just, just explain who Hayek was. I think the first name is Friedrich. Yeah, Friedrich Hayek, and uh, or he's often also known just as Hayek or F. A. Hayek. He was an Austrian economist, uh, and Austrian economics is a field of economics. Today, most Austrian economists aren't actually from Austria, but Hayek was actually from Austria. University of Vienna, that's where this school of thought develops. It's a different way of looking at economics. It's more of a a priori way of uh, thinking about the world and economics. So he has, for example, and other Austrians had this critique on how money works. And I think this train of thought led Hayek at some point to propose uh, state currency, so free market for currency. And I think this was another driver. I would say Chaum was probably the first, but then when some Austrians and Extropians, we'll get to that in a bit, when they sort of realized that money could become digital, they also saw that means we can reinvent money. We can make a better money, in their view, a better money. 
And yeah, let's talk about the extropians because they were sort of precursors to cypherpunks and they're very colorful. Who were they and what were their motivations and what did they want to do? Well, this is, uh, I think this is a, a pretty extraordinary history. And it's also one that really uh, weaves together those those two threads that that uh, that have just been so well explained. One one challenge where both of those sides met, right, the, the privacy thread and the money reform thread, the new money thread, the global money, free money thread. One of the places where those met was the idea that there was a real danger as money became digital that the ways that it was designed could um, halt or interfere with the kinds of innovation and activity that that digitization might unlock, right? So from the Chaumian perspective, if your privacy is being limited, um, and, you know, and Chaum, I think, had a really, really prescient fear about this, right? One that has come true in a lot of ways, which was basically it's not just that your, that could then be used to track you, for example, but it could also be used to data mine your transactions and like and and just as as, as was said to to use those transactions against you in various ways or to potentially do things like change the prices in real time, you know, to like gouge you around things that were that you, they knew that you had to pay for or knew that you had to pay at a particular time or what have you. So there's a whole sense that like okay, that will a drive people away from digital currency. Because it will be this bad deal. And B, that will dramatically limit the scope of human freedom in a lot of different directions. And then the sort of monetary reform side, right? You know, new money, different kinds of money, part of the the fear, the notion with this, which is, you know, which can be debated, but the notion with this was in part that. Um, the ability of sovereign states to control their money and use tools to manage the money supply um, could potentially interfere with the kinds of investment and innovation and transformation, especially technological transformation, that might be possible if you had other kinds of economics at work. So the reason I say that was that the Extropians were a remarkable group in that they really unified both of those threads. And they were kind of the place where those threads met. And I historically, I think the extropians are especially significant because almost everyone who was of significance in the genesis of Bitcoin, like passed through their ranks in one way or another, was a fellow traveler, was on their mailing list, you know, hung out with them, was an active card carrying extropian, etc. So the extropians, these two threads met. And the reason why I wanted to explain them in a little, you know, in a little depth was to understand their unique perspective. The extropians, as their name would suggest, saw themselves as having a kind of cosmic task. And the cosmic task was the opposite of entropy. Instead of a steady decline of complexity into noise and eventually some kind of entropic heat death, they wanted more complexity more transformation, more information on like a cosmic scale, more life. Like they thought at the scale of billions of years, they were interested in not just like becoming rich, but becoming like, you know, immortal minds embedded on silicon in, you know, far future physical forms expanding throughout the universe at the speed of light. Like that scope of ambition is a really amazing thing to consider when you think about how it reflects back on, okay, so what do you do today? What do you do this morning? And the extropian answer was, we try to build the platforms that will 
fuel the innovation that will bring about things like amazing medical breakthroughs, amazing technological breakthroughs, like, you know, seemingly science fictional technologies that could be realized now. And we will put ourselves financially in the position of being able to take advantage of those when they arrive. Right. So the idea is that if you can build an economic machine that is sufficiently uh, like powerful in terms of driving innovation, of accelerating change, then maybe you could bring about the inventions that would make it possible for you to live forever and to create utopia, right? And like, I, I say this uh, kind of as someone who and like really admires the scale of this ambition, but also to emphasize that until you go back and read the extropian documents, it's hard to realize that I'm not exaggerating at all, right? Like they, they really wanted to figure out what can we do that can create the greatest possible future for trillions of minds over billions of years. And the answer came back to one of the things is develop digital cash. Yeah, there's there's this like futuristic ideas, of course, always existed, like something like Star Trek comes to mind. But what really was the extropians really was, first of all, they thought as something that was very realistic, like that could actually be achieved with actual technology that's improving exponentially. So within their lifetime, you know, they could live forever, for example. And the other thing is that instead of some sort of Star Trekian benevolent government that is sort of like a perfect people made central planning thing or even democracy or whatever, the extropian, I'm not a Star Trek fan. I don't even know exactly. <laughs> Me what, neither. What can't help you. Like. <laughs> but the, the extropians, they really saw it as a, a, a free market thing. Like they had a very Austrian economics idea about it and freedom and individuals should should realize this progress and governments was interfering with that. Like governmental regulation was standing in the way. If you just let individuals be free, if you just let markets be markets, then this futuristic uh, utopia could become a reality. That's that's what I would add. Yeah, and actually that brings up a really good point, which is that they one other kind of way of, I think, understanding some of the unique elements that went into digital cash as it evolved and eventually into Bitcoin was, was exactly that fact that they were, and part of what they inherited from their interest in Austrianism was, uh, was, the, was a fundamental commitment to emergence, right? That like sort of superior things came about not through foresightful planning, but through the emergence and interaction, the emergence out of the interaction of unknown complex factors, right? So that means that they really wanted to design a kind of digital cash that had the minimal amount of oversight, essentially, that could kind of like enable, enable things to evolve with the least amount of control, which is, you know, in many ways, something that's very different from almost any other kind of money that has been sort of developed or administered. Yeah. And you see that ethos almost in cryptocurrency today. And by the way, so um, I know many people will listen to this on the podcast, but also we do record this on video. And I just can't help but notice that there's a poster behind Aaron's head that says <laughs> cypherpunk future something. The future, future is now. Yeah. What is that? That's a print by Martin Fisher. He's an artist from uh, Prague. Uh, he was involved. He's involved with a, a art collective, and they founded the Parallelnipolis. I don't know if you've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, it's like I have. A, yeah, it's like from... a collective of artists and hackers, and they got really into Bitcoin as well. And uh, so this is, is part of a series on uh, cypherpunk. Okay. I think the series is called Cypherpunk Futures now. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I wondered if it was some relic. It's got, a, it... uh, got an email from Tim May. I think it's the oh, Crypto wow. Anarchist Manifesto printed on it. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, so, yeah, wh- one other just like little comment I wanted to make about the Extropians was when I was reading Finn's book. Um, they also had reputation currencies that were kind of like a per- almost like a personal token, basically. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and there was something about it. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like cryptocurrency, but just a long, long time ago. Um, so that was pretty funny. Um, but anyway, I actually also wanted to ask, so what were the main problems that these creators of digital currencies were trying to solve? I think probably many of them are well known to Bitcoiners, but, but you know, let's just go through them so people have a baseline. Uh, I, I think that's skipping ahead a little bit, but that's, that's fine. I think the oh, main oh, problem... Oh, because we didn't get into the cypherpunks. Yeah, the right, cypherpunks right, right. are like, that's they the were next, sort of doing it step by step. And, let's... Yes, sorry, that was the second part of my question. I forgot that we didn't get into that part. So let's talk about that. Okay, well, I would say the first problem, the main problem, the main problem that any digital currency scheme had was the double spending problem, right? So if you make cash digital, if you make money digital, then the central problem there is that if you have a digital dollar bill, then you can just copy it and spend it to two people, right? And that sort of defeats the, the, the point of money. I would say that's sort of the central, the the main idea. But I, I, there's many problems they solved. They, it was sort of a step by step process towards Bitcoin, where they f- figured out to solve one problem after the other. You know, privacy is one, and but let's talk about the cypherpunks. Like, how did they come out of the extropians? How were they different? How were they similar? What were they? What were their motivations? And what was their philosophy? Can I start this one, Finn? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. So. Um, David Chalm wanted to create digital cash, right? Like he he wrote, he had this idea of how to do it. He had an idea of how to create digital cash. Um, and by digital cash, by the way, I specifically mean privacy. He was on the privacy side. He cared about privacy. Uh, this was in 1980. This was just after public key crypto- cryptography was even invented. It was pretty fast. Now he ended up in Amsterdam because he had a girlfriend there. And then at some point, he won a government contract to create a digital toll booth system. The Dutch wanted to create toll roads on their roads through some sort of electronic system where they track who's, which cars are driving where. Well, Chum thought, that's not a good idea. I don't want the government to know where each car is driving. So I have a better idea. I have a private solution. He was able to convince the government that that was, in fact, a better idea and that he was able to do it. So then he founded a company called DigiCash. At this company, uh, he created this toll booth system. But then he also, as part of the company, he also wanted to create a digital cash system. Okay, so this digital cash system was centralized, to be clear. There was a central database at the company, but he used clever cryptographic schemes to make sure that the database, ideally, or at least the people, yeah, it's a bit complicated. It's a bit nuanced how private it was, and there was a lot of debate about this. But the general idea was people paying each other don't know who they're paying, don't know the real names, and the company shouldn't know either. Because you asked about cypherpunks, I'll sort of get to cypherpunks. Eric Hughes, he was interested, it was an American, he was interested in digital cash. And he actually went to work as DigiCash, but he became disillusioned because some of the choices that DigiCash was making, I have to scrape my memory what, what his problems were with it. He, I, I don't remember. He had some problems with how it was being designed or how the company was 
planning to make money or something. So even I think some of it was, and and you know, I I don't know exactly what you're referencing, but I think some of it was the business decisions that Chaum, um could not make, uh, where he was getting all these really amazing offers, like from Microsoft. No, and, no yeah, is that, that was different? Much, that was much later. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that was much later. Okay. Eric Hughes was like in the early days of the company and he immediately had some problem and it had to do with being able to use the system offline and that came with a bunch of trade-offs as opposed to just using it online without trade-offs. Like it had some sort of secret chip in it, that like an unfortunate chip. There's a better term for it. Anyways, that was his problem. So after a couple of weeks, he was out. He wants to move back to California. And he was looking for a home near the coast and he met up with an old friend called Tim May. Tim May had been working at Intel, had made a lot of money because he solved a big problem and uh, he had stock options. And at one point he did the math and he figured, you know what, I'm 34 years old, but I can retire. Something like that, (laughs) around that age. So he retired and he spent a year on the beach bought a house near near the ocean and he spent a year on the beach reading books and he was reading a lot of cyberpunk books so and also economics and these kinds of things but also cyberpunk and cyberpunk is sort of this vision of the future where the internet had some sort of parallel role in 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 society that was usually one of the themes of cyberpunk books he got into contact with another, sorry, this is becoming a long story. Teme had another friend who was starting a company that was about selling information. The, the internet was brand new. This was like late 80s, early 90s, late 80s, I think still when this happened. His friend was thinking of starting a company about selling information. And then Teme realized, wait, if you can sell information anonymously, that could completely change the world. Because if you can sell data anonymously that means you can sell secret like government employees can sell secret data corporation if you're working at a big company you can sort of anonymously sell the secrets of that corporation and completely in his mind it was a revolutionary concept that you could anonymously sell information online in order to do that you needed something to sell it with anonymously so you needed digital cash okay Eric Hughes and Tim May met up and they started talking about this kind of stuff. And Tim May went feather in his mind. Like he started to think about if this is possible and if we have digital cash, the potential is complete disruption of government. Like it could realize an anarchic vision of the future where people don't pay taxes. There's no such things as government secrets, all of that. So he, it was a very anarchist vision. Tim May and Eric Hughes started to talk about that both super fascinated about this and then after a couple of days they came to the real they they asked themselves they questioned if all of these amazing tools exist because they had been invented in the 70s and 80s if all of this stuff exists then where is it why is no one actually using any of this and that's where they came to the idea that's where they got the idea to found the cypherpunks which was a group in california at first, they met physically. They met physically at Eric Hughes's house. I think there wasn't even furniture there then, so they were sitting on the floor. <laughs> they they were discussing these ideas, and they were they made the plan to actually use these tools and make it a reality, allow people to discuss, uh, converse, converse online anonymously, anonymous cash, anonymous information markets, all of this. Uh, so that that was sort of the the cypherpunk ethos: is all of these tools exist? Let's make them a reality. That's that's what they agreed to do. Yeah, Finn, what do you want to add? 
Yeah, yeah. No, I would love to add in. I think that's a fantastic account of like the, the whole kind of trajectory of this history. And I think also like in that account, you can sort of see the different problems that are coming up that they're, that they're, you know, that they're sort of going to make up the manifest of stuff that digital cash needs to be able to do and how they're trying to address those problems, right? Like, so it's going to have to be, it's not going to be like a credit card where like you verify your identity, you know, and then that, and then like a ledger is debited somewhere to switch it over to someone else's identity and all these transaction records are being produced. Instead, it's going to be like a token. It's got to be a token, but that means a token has to be uncopied right? Like I have to be able to transmit it to you without us being able to, you know, trivially duplicate it. It has to give away nothing about our transaction. But there's another, like all the kind of problems that we can see in like the bullet point list at the beginning of the Nakamoto white paper about Bitcoin, right? Like all the issues that Bitcoin addresses. But then there's another sort of bigger problem even in some ways, which is threading through the the story of the cypherpunks, which is um, what you would use this currency for. And I don't mean that in just a kind of trivial, like what could you buy with it way, but like one of the ways that you make a currency um, not just valuable, but but something that that is in use, something that is, as they say in the currency business, uh, passing current, you know, like something that people actually transact, is you have to make it something that can provide access to to value and to potentially sustainable value over time, right? Like you have to assume that when you put money into this, the value of that money is going to be stored in some way. If it diminishes, it's diminishing on some kind of known schedule. So this was one of the problems that they faced. Like one of the ways that May put it, which I think really captures the problem, is that he challenged people on the mailing list. He said, we've built anonymous email systems, and those are technically challenging, but they're socially easy because everyone gets what anonymous email is. But when I say that we need to make a digital coin, what is that digital coin? And when I say, here, I'm giving you 10 digital coins, what makes that something that someone else, what makes that something that someone else is going to use, that they're going to like make a part of their lives, that they're going to start essentially having more and more of a personal stake in, which is what will really help to get that currency over the line into actual circulation. And the answer to that, and I think this is a place where you can also see some of the challenges that that these currencies were going to face. The answer to that that May presented was that we're going to start by making it a way that you can access kinds of things, kinds of value that you can't get any other way. Right. Like we're going, he had a fantastic section in this long manifesto that he wrote where he lays out all of the different uh, communities that are going to drive the adoption of digital cash and related anonymizing technologies. The way that we identify everything that is currently excluded by law or custom from like existing areas of commerce. And then we make this into things that can be. So from that perspective, um, one of the reasons for understanding the importance of that, it starts out with the idea of selling uh, secrets is right that like this can make something really valuable may hypothetically sketched out a system of crypto credits. And part of the premise of those crypto credits was that you could get them as payment for selling secrets over this anonymized secret sharing platform that sort of like WikiLeaks meets the Silk Road almost in some ways. And it was a direct inspiration for both of those. But he says, okay, so you can be paid in those crypto credits and then you can use those to buy other information. And this is not what the currency is ultimately going to be, but this is the wedge that helps to break apart the structure of existing currencies. This is the thing that is 
what you can do with this currency that you couldn't do any other way. And this is what will help to drive its adoption and circulation. And I think that really helps us understand that this was a bigger problem that a lot of different digital cash projects faced. Not just what can you use it for, but what kinds of value does this let you access that you couldn't get any other way? What's the kind of, as it were, literal unique value proposition that this is going to offer to you? Yeah. And um, so now we're almost halfway through and um, we haven't even dived into some of the actual solutions that um, came along the way. But quickly, why don't we just go over? So I think probably some of the other main problems that these creators of digital currencies were trying to resolve, in addition to double spending and privacy or centralization, you know, having a central point of failure was, was something that they had to overcome. Spam was another one. There was kind of one key technological development that happened early that um, helped kind of enable these different digital currencies. And um, this was the development of a public key protocol by Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman. Can you talk about uh, you know what this was and why this was so significant? So this predates digital cash, right? Public key came before digital cash. So for context, before public key cryptography, cryptography itself was really something that belonged in the realm of like secret agents, uh, secret agencies or government agencies or the military or these kinds of domains. That's where it's that these were the sort of people that were generally doing encryption. And one of the major challenges they always had was that in, in prior encryption schemes, it was always the case that the public, uh, no, the, the decryption key was the same as the encryption key. So that's called symmetric encryption. What Whitfield Diffie really and, and Hellman really uh, invented is this public key cryptography system where you can publicly share your key with anyone and then anyone so with symmetric encryption, sorry, I should have mentioned this, the challenge is that you can only communicate privately if you first met in real life in some way, because you got to exchange the key. If you exchange the key over an insecure line, then the snoop can just listen to the key and then listen to your whole conversation. So it really only works if you meet up somewhere. Now, an added benefit, so public key crypto cryptography allows anyone to communicate privately without having to meet first. Another added benefit was that you could sign messages. So you could, if the world knew that this is, if the world knows that this is my public key, then I can sign messages with this, which is a mathematical trick, doing a mathematical equation on other data. And then I proved that the only person that could have done that is the person who has the private key that corresponds to the public key. Right, so this trick of owning or of of signing information, this is used in digital cash schemes to prove ownership. So there are you you prove at least in Bitcoin and let's see. Well, anyway, so you prove ownership over a specific coin by signing away ownership. I I, I forgot your question, but does that answer it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just to understand, you know what what uh, it was that they developed and why that was crucial to the development of Bitcoin. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk about the early forms of digital currency, such as um, eCash and Hashcash and B-Money and BitGold, etc. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. 
How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Back to my conversation with Aaron Van Weerdum and Finn Brunton. So David Chaum is a name that's come up several times, and we did talk a little bit about eCash and his company Digicash, but uh, why don't we just dive into the details on eCash? How did it work? What breakthroughs did it contain that later led to Bitcoin, and what were its flaws? I, I can maybe, uh, you know, just go, kind of provide a very a very kind of cursory um, overview which was that that and one of the things that um, really distinguishes it from a lot of other kinds of digital cash that that came subsequently was the notion that you didn't have to worry about how it was minted, right? Like you didn't have to worry about how it was created because it was not new money. Instead, it was a format that you could transfer your existing money into that would let you spend it digitally without like it would let you spend it digitally in a way that was as analogous as possible to exchanging cash itself. So the notion was, in in very very simple terms, that when you withdrew uh, each cash, it would take the form of just like withdrawing money from an ATM, and you might even do it as an ATM into a payment card, but it would not be like you were handling, you know, a debit card or a credit card where you swipe it and it checks in with the central ledger and then it transfers the money if you can prove your your right to transfer it. Instead, it would be as though you had an envelope of physical cash with you. If you lost that card, the cash was gone. Um, the reason why that was especially important was that that meant that you were holding a kind of digital money token that didn't need to know anything about you. So you could like get into your cab or go to your convenience store, slot it in, authorize the transfer of the money. And then at that point, their point of sale terminal would be able to check in a way that ties very nicely back into how Aaron was just describing public key cryptography that could check and say, is this money token signed by an issuing bank? Right. So there would be like, you know, basically Wells Fargo's, you know, key would be would be used to sign this token to say we will redeem this token for 20 U.S. dollars, blah, blah, blah. So it would check if that was OK. If so, it would transfer that into the uh, like the, the wallet, as it were, the digital wallet of the merchant. And then the merchant could bring that in and deposit it. And it would be just as if they're taking in that like zip bag from, you know, a retail store filled with cash. So a couple of reasons why that sort of layout is really important for understanding how different something like Bitcoin is. The first is that they didn't need to build any kind of technical minting mechanism to limit the production of money because that was a central bank issue. All this is is a format. Um, the second thing is that it anonymizes you but it doesn't anonymize the merchant. And that was part of the promise that Chow made, right? That like the person who deposits this digital cash is going to have to deposit it into some named bank account if they want to redeem it for money that they can spend. Um, that means that it's money that makes the customer anonymous, but would still be very difficult to use for purposes like money laundering, you know, bribery, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then the, the sort of last 
tricky detail about it is uh, goes back to that point about toll booths, right? So, like, how do you make this work if there if you're not in a situation? Because remember, we're talking about the 1980s, 1990s. You know, we're not all blanketed in like you know LTE data everywhere. How do you make it so that someone can't just spend the same signed money token at a bunch of different places and then like you know uh, and then all those merchants try to deposit it? Maybe the first one gets it back and everyone else is told, "Sorry, you just accepted a bounce check and we have no way to connect it back." Um, and Chowman and a group of collaborators came up with a, a wonderfully elegant set of solutions that were basically such that if you spent the same money, I believe more than twice, then there was a way in which that could be used to de-anonymize that money. Um, so there was a set of, whole set of solutions. But again, the whole premise here is that it's not digital cash the way that we might think of it. It's literally just trying to make existing money digital. So this might be a really nice way to kind of segue into something like hash cash, which is a way to try to think about like, how can we produce money that is not about translating central bank money digitally, but instead about making natively digital money. Yeah, before we get into Hashcash, let's talk a little bit more about eCash and DigiCash. So DigiCash was the company and it was using this eCash system. And, you know, it was generating quite a bit of buzz and um, getting a lot of multinational companies interested in using it. So what happened with it? Well, Laura, that depends on who you ask. <laughs> Yeah, I, can, I can confirm that. You get some different stories about how that went down. Chaum and the company was basically selling a technology. Like Finn said, they weren't necessarily creating money themselves. They were creating a money layer, like you could layer it on top of other on existing currencies. So a bank could, for example, use this to issue digital cash. And apparently there was a lot of interest for this and definitely a lot of buzz around this company it was seen as sort of one of the next big things that that you know silicon valley and during uh during the this, the, the 90s people were talking about like um you know the companies that that were big then were like yahoo and these come and 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 digicast was definitely seen as like one of the potential next big ones apparently chum got a couple of fairly good offers maybe he didn't think they were as good and for some reason there were no big deals struck and at some point they started to annoy employees at the company and that's kind of when it started to fall apart i i think this is a, a version of history that's hard to disagree with <laughs> the the disagreement is to what extent chaum was maybe at fault or like the, to what extent he was being too stubborn is what some people will claim you know the, he clearly he did definitely doesn't think that was the case. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I did also I did that, see... Just... Oh, just quickly, I did also see yeah. some people saying that he had kind of a cypherpunk sense of paranoia, um, that, you know, maybe some of the deals Possibly. weren't as good as they appeared and that kind of thing, which definitely that is part of that um, ethos. And Finn, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that um, I think... We, you know, he really, uh, I think we can look back at, at that moment and DigiCash and really kind of understand where we are now in terms of a prediction that Chow made, uh, like I believe in his testimony to Congress in the early 90s, which was that if we don't get good privacy protecting digital cash by design, then we are going to get digital cash that just routes around territorial currencies entirely. 
um, I think he really he really foresaw the idea that like he had come up with a really specific framework for how this could work that would allow it to kind of play really well with existing institutions. And if that didn't come to pass, people were going to just start building their own. Yeah, that that's also one of the reasons why Chaum and the cypherpunks didn't always get along as well. The other, there was also patents, uh, debates between them. But yeah, because like Finn explained, there were actually some ways in which eCash users could be de-anonymized. It would, re there were a couple of, it would, for example, require the spender and the bank to cooperate. But anyways, so there were some weaknesses and cypherpunks really, really didn't like that. So they, and then they couldn't build their own version of it because Chaum had the patent. So there was friction there. But yeah, Chaum thought the cypherpunks were actually too radical. They were too radical for his taste. Like the stuff I just explained about Tim May's vision of uh, anarchy and crypto anarchy. Chaum wasn't really on board with that. So that was, um, so yeah, he did make this prediction. In, indeed, Finn is right. He made this prediction to Congress that if, something like eCash wouldn't be adopted, then something more radical would come along. <laughs> and here we are. Here we um, are. <laughs> <laughs> so that was back in the 90s. And there was another development. Uh, this was proposed in 1992, which was proof of work. And it was just proposed in a paper. And obviously, that's a key technology in Bitcoin. Who developed that? And how does it work? And what was the original purpose of proof of work? Yeah, so the first version was developed by uh, what's her name, Dwar and Naor. Yeah, Cynthia, Cynthia Dwork. Yeah, Dwork and Naor. Yeah, so it was meant as postage. I I know. Uh, I'm not exactly. I've never interviewed them. Have you interviewed them, Finn? I've no, spoken with Adam Beck a lot. Yeah, I've yeah. spent. Yeah. I've chatted with Adam Beck a lot, of course, who reinvented it. He. So I'll just tell. I'll I'll just tell you. Adam Beck's version of the story is that okay because yeah. I know more about that yeah. and I think that the motivations were similar I think like they wanted to invent the same thing and the Beck invented reinvented uh, individually a couple of years later so yeah the idea was that during the 90s uh, you know around the mid 90s spam was becoming an issue email spam just you know it's free to send as many emails as you want so you can tell, uh, send 10 million emails trying to sell penis enlargements or whatever you're spamming. <laughs> and then there was also the thing with the cypherpunks, they had remailers. So they were offering technology that would allow you to email through them. And you could email through a network of remailers. And that it's kind of like Tor today. It has similar technology. So you could use that. But these were being spammed as well. People were just sending spam through these remailers. So that was costing all sorts of resources for the people that were running these remailers, which included a lot of cypherpunks. They, they would run that stuff themselves to offer privacy to anyone who wanted it. But so, yeah, it was being abused. So they were starting to think about how can we counter this abuse? And they were starting to think in the, in the direction of postage for the Internet. But then the question is, how do we do postage? Now, one way I, I should note... One, one, another solution to deal with spam is to have it banned by the government. But the problem with having, a, having it banned by the government is that you get the government involved in deciding what kind of data people can send to each other. And the cypherpunks really didn't like idea, uh, this idea, in part because, you know, this would be the camel's nose under the tent. That's the English <laughs> expression, right? Like if you, if you let government decide that and who knows what else they'll decide and it, it will end with like driver's licenses for the internet and, and all this. So they wanted to come up with their 
one solution for that. And the solution they were thinking is like, we need a postage system. So we need something that resembles postage. And there were a couple of ideas about this. One idea resembles eCash, just use eCash as postage, but postage, but eCash wasn't really ready yet. And they had their own problems with and all of that. So then at some point, Adam Beck came up with the solution of proof of work, Hashcash, which meant that there were implementation details that could differ. But the general idea was that if you mail someone, then you need to actually first solve like a puzzle. It's not really a puzzle. Actually, Dwarfs and Dwarfs version was a puzzle. Adam Beck a bit different. But you need to prove that you uh, spent energy, which means you hash the email a bunch of times until you get a hash of the email that would be considered valid by whoever's accepting um, the email. And because not all of the hashes would be considered valid by the protocol, you'd have to try a bunch of times. This costs a little bit of energy and only if you've done that, they will accept the email. Otherwise, it will just bounce. Now, the idea is that if you're sending an email alone, it would just cost you five seconds of computing power or something like that. So it's not really a big deal. If you're a spammer trying to send out penis enlargements emails, you have to do that 10 million times, and that's 10 million times times five seconds. And now all of a sudden, it's going to be super expensive to spam everyone in the world or spam these um, remailers. So that's at least Adam's back motivation for coming up with that. I'm assuming Dwork and Naor had a similar idea of the problem. And just for people, because uh, now we're getting a little bit technical, um, and I know not all of my audience is very technical, but a hash is like a random string of numbers and letters, and it's kind of hard to create, but easy to reverse an en- engineer to check it and verify it. And so that that's, uh, you know, it's com- kind of commonly used now in uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. But now let's just talk about Hashcash. Um, you know, we've been talking about Adam back and in 1997, and uh, currently Adam is well known. He's the co-founder and CEO of Blockstream. Um, and in 1997, he proposed Hashcash to the cypherpunk mailing list. And so who was he at that time and what was Hashcash, uh, and how did it work? I think yeah, I think this is, it's been it's been very well explained. Kind of the the goal, and I think one crucial thing to understand about how Adam was proposing it was that um, he it it begins like in in many ways. Part of what he's worked out is a a technology with a lot of different potential applications that people can start kind of, uh, you know, feeling out what it's going to be like. And he writes this kind of series of, of papers and proposals and emails, which are pretty fascinating because you can actually watch the idea evolve, right? Where it starts as thinking, you know, as, as of thinking of it as like some kind of postage system. And one particular aspect of that to understand is that Hashcash would be unique, right? Like each, um, I, I believe the exact way that this worked involved the notion Right, because a hash is is you know this sort of you know string of data, and you can set particular parameters around like how you know unlikely you want that version to be, so that you can essentially escalate the amount of work that it takes. But nonetheless, it's a it's a string of data that's based on existing data, and so part of the original sort of system for Hashcash was the idea that the original data would be, for example, your email, the exact timestamp when it was sent, the from and to, and so on. And the reason for that was that that would make it so that um, a spammer could not simply like generate hash cash in five seconds and then just, you know, control C, control V onto 10 million emails. So the idea is that it has to be like uniquely generated for each message. So the reason why that's especially interesting is that 
it begins to dawn on all of the kind of the circle that Back was working with, the larger kind of cypherpunk community, that if there could be a way that you could use Hashcash to not just create like unique one-off, like, you know, bits of proof of work for particular emails, but as some kind of uh, effort limiter that you could like reuse or link to some like larger project, well, there might be a lot more that you could do with this technology. So in, I believe it's 2002, Back has been reading and thinking about some posts by uh, Wei Dai, who has who has become obviously like very kind of very uh, famous in, in our world in our in our community for um, coming up with uh, the B money model and a variety of different kinds of ways of thinking about uh, digital currency and making a lot of contributions to cryptography more broadly. And part of the the premise of B money is that okay, what if we had a, a kind of digital currency that we could exchange, and that all of the people who held it could collectively be part of the, as it were, bank that issued it, and and back is begins to talk about, well, what if you could actually use Hashcash as a kind of minting mechanism for a currency, right? So you could actually use Hashcash as a way of saying, we will make it you know, this level of difficult to produce new currency. And then if there's too much currency floating around, the community can make it this level of difficult and slow down the production of new currency for a while. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about this, but now you can start to see an answer to that question of not just what stops double spending, but what stops you from flooding the market by control C, control Ving your currency over and over again. Well, maybe the answer is a hash cash like tool that can like slow down or moderate or demand work for the production of digital money. And, and so that's where we see how you know, ever yeah. used. Um, there were some interesting like test versions and there have been a, a, like other applications that are not in this exact lineage of people using these kind of like small scale proofs of work. Um, but the as far as like being applied to money goes, I don't know from the institutional side, but from the cypherpunk side, I believe people start really exploring how to use these ideas and they always credit back and they're all in conversation with each other. But it doesn't necessarily take the form of Hashcash as such, right? Like they definitely were actually able to get it to run. Like we have, you know, emails that Hal Finney was sending that are kind of experimenting with Hashcash. But when we start to see it actually being used, it's often in the form of something like Hal Finney's usable proofs of work system, where he basically said, like, he came up with a really ingenious way to have proofs of work that you could generate, that you could then essentially turn into a server that would say, like, okay, this has been deposited with me. I'm going to verify that this is still valuable, and then I'm going to issue it again that someone else can use it in an exchange. So we can see the premises of digital currencies appearing based on Hashcash, but that's kind of where they're already starting to mutate. It turned out that if you put a Hashcash filter on your email inbox and no one is using Hashcash, then you're never getting any emails. So it sort of had this chicken and egg <laughs> It had sort of this chicken and egg problem and as hash cash for email or that never really caught on. But like Finn said, it was like a it was a major milestone. What it sort of did was it it tied real world resources, namely energy, in, and it tied it into the digital world. So now you had something digital that proved that it that it had real world resources 
um, being burned in in this in this case. Like it it tied the real world to the digital digital world. So that that was sort of the big, and that's why people start thinking about it in terms of money, because yeah, for money you need money needs to be scarce. That's one of the things money needs to be. So if you can tie real world scarcity to it, then that works. The problem with hashcash as money was that computers get faster every year, much faster every year. So then it gets much harder, you know, it, you have this risk of inflation. If you have a certain difficulty for which hashcash would have had, then it gets easier to create new money every year. And after a couple of years, you know, the, the system gets overrun by inflation, cheap money. And like Finn said, so yeah, that was sort of the next problem they had solve like how do we solve this inflation problem and that turned out not to be so easy yeah and eventually it did get resolved <laughs> with bitcoin um but before we get to that um two things so first let's just very briefly talk about who hal finney was because he's so important and we haven't really discussed him and then we'll talk about b money because that was the next um digital currency so just very briefly who was hal finney Halfini was a digital currency enthusiast from the earliest days. He was on the Extropian mailing list uh, where and the Extropian uh, meetings where he was already, you know, that was sort of his thing, digital cash. And then he became part of the cypherpunks. And again, he was always on the on the sort of front line of the discussion of digital cash and what it should be. And every time someone had a proposal, he was the first to jump on it, review it, explain it to others. Um, at some point, he created his own digital currency, RPAL, which Finn briefly mentioned, which was based on proof of work and had this um, the same type of chip that I mentioned in the context of Chalm system. With this, uh, there's a better term for it, which is escaping me. The unforgeable type of chip. That's what he used. But yeah, Helvini was always there. He was always on the front line of uh, digital currency discussions, debate, review. He was very much a figure of, um, and I feel like it's really important to like capture the way that when you look back over the history of digital cash, like he's he's always there, just just as was said, right? Like to the point of being, um, you know, like Nakamoto's correspondent and like a you know key figure in the very earliest days of Bitcoin. But he was also um, in a way that I, I want to like, you know, especially because he passed away, you know, quite young relatively and, and very, you know, tragically and unfortunately, um, that he also had uh, a real role of like uh, emotional leadership in a lot of ways, like through the whole history of this. When he was, you know, just arguing with uh, cypherpunks about directions that they could be developing digital cash tools, um, he said that, uh, and this always really struck me in the context of, you know, this, this you know, just mailing list where people are arguing over technical points, he said, we may look back on this and understand that this was the most important work that we have ever done. You know, mm -hmm. like he was really someone who kind of like carried the torch for a lot of these projects. Um, but yeah, so he, yeah. Uh, and he is, he is uh, um, someone as well who I think helps us kind of segue maybe into the Bitcoin era a little bit because he really like, you know, carried a lot of these same projects and ideas and questions straight from the periods we've been talking about into Nakamoto's uh, publication. He was, he was also, just to mention that, he was also a major contributor to GPG in the early days. Oh, oh. Uh, which PGP, is, am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah, pretty good privacy, which is, just remind me what that, that's, it's a protocol for, is it encrypted? For public key uh, cryptography, yes, to communicate, which was sort of the first implementation of that idea that Whitfield, Diffie, and Hellman invented. 
Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, let's move on to B Money, which brings in another character who's really important. In 1998, Wei Dai proposed B Money. And Aaron, in an article on B Money, you called it Bitcoin's first draft. And I remember when I read about it in Finn's book, I made a little note, is B-Money the closest precursor to Bitcoin? Because <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, whoa. Um, but let's talk about, um, you know, who was Wei Dai? And then, uh, Aaron, why did you call B-Money a first draft of Bitcoin? Well, I actually had to correct that, Laura. I, I think I mentioned it in a note in the article because it turned out that Bitgoals and so there was Zabo's proposal and uh, B-Money, I think Bitcoin actually... Um, predated B money. I didn't know that, that when uh-huh. I wrote the article, but it was very close. Like they were yeah. discussing on the same mailing list, Dabo and Wide Eye and others. They were on the same mailing list, not just the Cypherpunk mailing list, also another one. Um, so it's you know they're temper contemporaries. That's that's the word, right? It was the same time. But yeah, B money. What's interesting about B money? Several things are interesting about B money. But one of the things that is interesting about B money, and Finn mentioned this, I think, is this idea that. The ledger of ownership of the currency itself, in Xiaomi's case, at Digicast, this was centralized. And this meant, actually, they had a play money version uh, of eCash as well, as well. And people start to value this. And they actually, it, it was called Cyberbox. And people actually had this play money, but they started to value it. So it was sort of working as money. But then when Digicast went down... Then all of a sudden, the central server was down, so their money was gone, right? So it had this central point of failure. B-Money was one of the first attempts to solve this. So instead of a central point, instead of a central server that was maintaining maintaining the balances of everyone, they shared this. Now, it's a little bit hand-wavy how they would have done this and how they would have solved certain problems. Or to put it differently, they didn't solve all the problems, but you know, it was a big step. But that was, I think that was, I would say that was probably the most important idea. That's what I focused my article on, at least. That the the ownership of balances was maintained on a decentralized distributed ledger. Every time someone makes a payment, everyone updates their ledgers. So everyone has the same idea of who owns what, not just one person. So anyone... There's no central, no nothing can be shut down. Nothing, no one can cheat. No individual can cheat about how much they own because then the rest of the network would just notice that and not accept that version. Um, there's no pressure point for the government to target and to maybe install all sorts of regulation um, or, or you know, this sort of it by decentralizing, dis- distributing the ownership of currency. That was a you you get you do away with the central point of failure. I would say that was the big innovation that both B-Money and Bitgold around the same time uh, brought to the world. And what was the flaw in B-Money? Like, why didn't it go anywhere? Uh, There were a couple of problems with it. I would say one problem was it's, well, so for example, the double spending problem was not really solved because if I, you know, if I copy my coin so to say and send the same transaction well the same coin to two different people on two different parts of the network and they do it at the same time then they are have they both haven't updated their ledger yet for the other transaction so it sort of conflicts then they're both going to argue that their transaction was first and there's no way for the network to sort of resolve this 
Now, he had some sort of idea of maybe having tiers of users, where some users would be sort of like power users and others would be more like client users. And then these power users would have to sort out which who was first. Another problem, I would say, is how to get the money into circulation. Um, he had some ideas about it. He had some idea about... You know, either these power users could figure out how much new currency was needed and based on that adjust the uh, proof of work difficulty, like Finn uh, just mentioned. There were some other sort of rough ideas, but that's how I would describe them. They were rough ideas. He was almost, it wasn't a, dis- it wasn't a final design of a system that could have been implemented. It was a great innovation in that it was a good idea, but it wasn't quite. The details were still a little bit murky and hand wavy, I yeah. would say. And one thing that was interesting was what you described with the power users. Uh, they would kind of obtain that position by putting down a deposit, which could be slashed. And so it's essentially a proof of stake system or what we would recognize as that today. And I found that pretty fascinating. And uh, there was another difference, which is that B Money uh, had a different monetary policy from Bitcoin. Um, what was its monetary policy? Yeah, so Vide's main idea was that there would be a basket of goods in the same way that we have a basket of goods now and central banks use this this sort of manage inflation. So there would be a basket of goods and, oh, I have to think about this. It's been a while since I wrote that article. Every time someone hashes a new thing, it should be worth that basket of goods. So uh, it's a long time. Well, the main thing is he wanted it to be a stable currency. He did not believe in. Yeah, that's for sure. That was the yeah, goal. It was, yes. it was very much like yeah. It was a it was a way of kind of um, reinventing the you know the notional goals of a central bank for a, a way that like the kind of power users who are holding the currency would be able to to act in its best interest as a kind of central bank, but with some really interesting like yeah kind of almost computational like ratchet mechanisms that would sort of help them have the tools to keep that value constant. But yeah, it was very. It's I mean I think it's also really interesting to look back at things like this and likewise that. Um, at uh, BitGold as well, and to kind of see them as examples of things that we're really trying to think about what long-term stability would look like for a digital currency, right? Like, you know, with with all due respect to the extropians, they were not afraid of like bubbles or, you know, crazy runaway speculative booms because those might be the accelerants that they would need to sort of, you know, crank up the motor of, you know, far future innovation. And, it's it's really interesting to look at some of these and see the ways that people were trying to look at uh, gold. Um, we're speculatively talking about baskets of goods. We're looking at inflation management. We're trying to kind of think about how you would create something that would be more about um, stability as a store of value over time rather than like volatility as a speculative instrument. And so Bitgold, I guess, was developed by Nick Zabo around this time, but I don't think he publicly described it until 2005. And he had actually worked at Digicash under Chom. Um, What else can you tell us about who Nick Zabo was at that time? And then um, tell us a little bit more about the characteristics of Bitgold. Yeah, it was definitely an early cypherpunk as well, although he wasn't as active on the list later on. I think he was mostly active in the early days and he really cared about privacy and these things. I would say uh, you said he, yeah, he only publicly 
posted the idea for Bitgold on his blog in like 2005, but it was definitely, it was, so this was the other mailing list I mentioned. They had another mailing list and with Wydai, for example, and apparently that's where he posted it around the same time, like 1998. Privacy-minded, uh, very libertarian, uh, inspired by Tim May. Tim May was sort of, you know, the sort of crypto anarchy ideal that was, there was a big expression for a lot of them. Not all of them. Some were a little bit more, uh, um, less radical, you could say. But uh, for Nick Zabo, was definitely uh, into the whole crypto anarchy thing. And so we get into Bitgold. Yeah. So Bitgold also used proof of work. Um, the, the way Bitgold did it was there was it started with like a candidate string. So there was a string of numbers, and then anyone could perform proof of work on top of that string so create a hash and like we've explained before not all hashes are valid so it needs to you need to prove that you only certain hashes are valid which means you've invested energy okay then you get a new string if you win a new string that string is yours like you sort of it becomes your ownership it gets tied to your public key it's it's yours to have so the string itself is like the money the other thing is that the string becomes the new candidate string. So we started with the candidate string. It was hashed. You have a, ha a winning hash that becomes someone's money. And now the new hash is always uh, also a candidate string. So someone else can start hashing on that on the on the, on that string. And that that's how you get like a string of hashes. So that resembles Bitcoin quite a bit, right? It's also got this string of hashes, which is sort of uh, which is the blockchain. So this was embedded in uh, Bitgold. So everyone's winning these strings. The strings is money. Now, one of the problems is, like we've discussed before, computers are getting faster every year, so it gets easier to develop, uh, to find new strings every year. Now, this becomes a problem because if I have a string that I found five years ago and it cost me, you know, five days and we're, ten year, we're five years later and you get a string within five minutes because your computer is so much faster, you know, are they really worth the same? That's, that's not really, you know, that doesn't really work well. Um, so, you know, ideally they should be equally hard to find, but that's uh, not the case. So, they, so then he had another layer where these strings would be traded against each other. And that's how the value of the different strings would be sort of measured against each other. So newer strings would be worth less than older strings. And then there, was, there were sort of banks that would bundle these strings. And that's how you would get sort of an equal unit of account where... Uh, one old string is like worth 10 new strings. So what you've got two bundles. One bundle has just one old string. One bundle has two, 10 new strings. And these are sort of caught up and then you have money. Like this, uh, these, these make for the units of count. That was Bitcoin's idea. And I, I just wanted to emphasize that one kind of thread in, in Zabo's work that we can also see in um, in Bitgold is and another kind of way of thinking about the set of problems to solve was that um, uh, it was also trying to find a way to remove all of the so-called trusted third parties, right? Like to to remove, you know, anyone who would be to remove any institution or person that you would have to trust to, for example, authenticate the value of something or to enable the transaction of something or to that you would trust in in the production of the token of value, you know, and so on. So like, it's, it's useful to think about these as a set of technologies that are all trying to slowly subtract the trusted third parties on which people normally rely in their transactions of money. Yeah, but Nick Sabo didn't really solve that problem. He yeah, tried. Yeah, no, no. Right. He wanted so, to. Yeah. He yeah. wanted to. Like, that was the goal. That was the idea with the distributed ledger. But then it was, you know, that's 
it's a very hard problem to solve. It turns out, and, and he, you know, he came up with um, so that's called Byzantine fault yeah. tolerance. Ah, am I saying yeah. this right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was, it was like it were like the type of systems that maybe co- uh, airplanes would use. Like the, the several of the computers must all fail at the same time, and but then it becomes tricky. Like who's actually running these computers? And he, for example, didn't really solve the Sybil problem, which is you know anyone can fire up a thousand fake nodes, uh, you know, the suck puppet problem, and then sort of mess with consensus and, you know, all lie about who owns what. And then you're joining the system as a new user and everyone's, you know, all of these thousands of suck puppets are telling you one thing. And then these other computers, these other nodes are telling you another who's telling the truth. This wasn't a very properly solved system yet for Bitgold. That was a big challenge. And so then after that, Satoshi did come out with Bitcoin. In what ways did Bitcoin improve upon Bitgold? I, so Bitcoin did something extremely clever. Satoshi did something extremely clever because he solved two big problems at once. The one problem we've been dealing with is how do you get currency in, into circulation? And the other problem is how do you get everyone to, to agree on the state of balances? Now, Satoshi actually tied these things together. So there's one way of getting new currency of, uh, into circulation, which is through proof of work. And by the way, in Satoshi's, in Bitcoin, it's not the proofs of work themselves that are money. You know, it's just a way to determine who gets the new money. So there's sort of another abstraction layer there as well, which I think is also very important, by the way. So that's one thing that he... Uh, there's sort of this lottery of who gets uh, the new money. And then the winner of this lottery also has the right to determine, I'm simplifying, but gets the right to determine, okay, this is the real state. You know, if there's, if there isn't consensus, then this is now the consensus. The, you know, the winner gets to decide. If there's two winners at the same time in coincidence, then it's the next winner after that. And then ultimately, this is how it resolves. So it's these two problems that were solved in the same same solution, which is, you know, that's sort of the brilliance of Bitcoin, I think. And uh, we talked about Hal Finney a little bit earlier, and he was crucial to the launch of Bitcoin. Can we just tell a little bit about that story? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, Finney was was on that mailing list and and responded really promptly. I mean, one thing that is often forgotten when we look back at Bitcoin um, is how um, how dubiously it was initially greeted at the very, very first instance. The reason being, right, the dubiousness was because a lot of the people who were on that list had, you know, some many of them were people we've already talked about today, or they were sort of people in the same milieu as a lot of the people we talked about today. They'd seen digital, you know, digital cash projects come and go. They'd like tried them out. They'd kick the tires on them. Maybe some of them remembered the days of like ghost marks and tacky tokens and all these various sort of experiments and projects and, and stabs. And so there was a fair amount of, um, you know, kind of early, uh, you know, you know, just just people who are like, well, did you did you didn't think about this, or this is probably going to happen, or you really need to kind of map this out. And I think Finney is really important, both because he provides a bunch of concrete, you know, technical advice and ideas about refining the project and kind of figuring out what its what its trajectory of improvement is going to be as it goes from white paper to working code. But Finney also was kind of one of the most important cheerleaders, you know, the person who could say, I really think there's something here. And I think there's something that actually, you know, like Finney was was able to 
you know, both because he was really looking for something like this, but also because I think in a lot of ways he was very discerning about exactly the fact that this had, in fact, solved a couple of pre-existing problems that no one had ever figured out how to address, certainly not as elegantly, and had tied those solutions together into a new package, into a new way that money could be. So Finney was someone who, in a lot of ways, like maybe... I don't know. I'm not sure, you know, it can be room for disagreement about whether or not this is actually the case. But I, I'm really curious if Bitcoin would have become another, like, kind of also ran draft towards, you know, the next version of this technology, were it not for the fact that Finney had really helped to, like, keep it all rolling forward. Um, yeah, and was crucial know, to the launch because he was receiving the the transactions and it, well, so- and I, I would I would add that I think Finney apart from maybe Satoshi I don't even know about Satoshi but I think Finney has the first sort of quote that I think shows that he understood sort of the value proposition of bitcoin or understood why its value mm-hmm. would or could bootstrap right which is this digital scarcity which is that because it's interesting Finney did a lot of work on prediction markets as well I don't uh, I won't get into prediction markets entirely but it's sort of predicting the future with tokens it, it has a lot of like odds related like what are the, what are the odds of something happening and then Finney sort of did the math like what are the odds of Bitcoin succeeding maybe very small but what are the and what what would a Bitcoin be worth then and then if you sort of do the math then he concluded well that means if there is any chance of Bitcoin succeeding, then it's got to have some value because the odds, like it can't be zero. Like there's got to be some value. And that's how, uh, I, you know, that's sort of how Bitcoin's value bootstrap through the scarcity and through the sort of odds, you know, thinking in odds. I, I thought that was a great early quote by Vinny where he sort of understood why this could actually be big and might as well, you know, it's got to have some value. And then, then from then it could bootstrap. I think the quote was that he looked at the value of all the money in the world and then said, well, if the cap on Bitcoin is 21 million, then one coin will be worth $10 million um, if it does overtake all the <laughs> the value of all the money in the world. Yeah, and-, and then you can think how much would it cost to mine one and then you can sort of do the odds. Like, is it? And then I think the math he got to is like, if, there's, if the chance is even 100 million to one, that it will succeed, then you should probably get some because you're getting a good deal. Yeah. And so amongst all the precursors, who did Satoshi credit the most or which previous attempts did Satoshi rely on most heavily? I actually have an unusual answer for this, which is, um, right, so there, there's a couple of people that we haven't talked about. I mean, and this is maybe a very, like, dry uh, historian's kind of interest. But one thing that fascinates me is the relative lack of overlap between academic computer science and, like, kind of cypherpunk computer science or, like, kind of hacker digital cash development, that people would keep kind of reinventing things on both sides without necessarily knowing that the other side had done it yet. So... There's a bunch of people, many of whom we've already talked about, you know, Wei Dai, Adam Back, like people that, that uh, Nakamoto was in touch with and was drawing on. But um, the people who get cited in the, in the uh, white paper are uh, two computer scientists named Haber and Stornetta. And, and theirs is a really interesting story because in a lot of ways they invented the first blockchain, but they didn't invent it for money, right? They invented it as a way of irrefutably and publicly timestamping documents. And their particular interest was, uh, was actually kind of an amazing one to think about when we look at how Bitcoin now works. 
which is um, right. So you have like bench lab notebooks where you write in your results, and there's all these physical mechanisms that make it so that we can be sure that you aren't like fiddling with your numbers after the fact. You know, there's like numbered pages sewn in bindings. They said, how do we do that digitally? We come up with a publicly verifiable mechanism, no trusted third parties that relies on blockchain technology in their kind of earliest form. Um, and then we will periodically like publish the verification hash in the lost and found section of the New York Times. And everyone can use it to prove to themselves that this system is still, is still working. So the reason why I say that is I think that's one other thread that I think is really worth remembering in all this is that there's this whole history of like changing the world through currency. But then there's also a more abstract but equally important history which is how do you irrefutably timestamp something digitally? How do you create a digital mechanism that allows you to say in a way that everyone can trust that this happened at such and such a time? Um, and so that, and that I think is something that we can really see in all the ways in which Bitcoin itself then like led to all of these other blockchain applications that have continued to kind of run with um, the, the way that it was reintroduced through Bitcoin, but then are now using it for lots of different kinds of proofs. Aaron, do you have Yeah, well, well, I can't, uh, I don't know, Satoshi, I can't look into his mind. I don't know who <laughs> inspired him to what extent. I will say, you know, if I'm just looking at the different projects that, that we've discussed or that are out there, then Bitcoin is really pretty similar to Bitcoin. It was like getting pretty close. And it's, uh, you know, it's notable that Zaba wasn't mentioned in the white paper. Satoshi did later mention that Bitcoin was an implementation of Bitcoin somewhere on the Bitcoin Talk forums. Hmm. So, I don't know. I, I, I can't make any claims on behalf of Satoshi and I'm not gonna. I'll just, from my own perspective, <laughs> Bitcoin looks an awful lot like Bitcoin. <laughs> and in yeah, your research... I, I agree completely. For both of you, who who did you come to believe was the most likely candidate or candidates to be Satoshi Nakamoto? I don't. I don't care. I mean, I <laughs> I don't. Know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, Laura. He he I, wanted I to remain anonymous. That's my answer. Yeah, I have a little bit of a, uh, a a really honest answer, even though it sounds like a historian's like head fake, which is basically that I think that um, culturally, historically, the fact that Nakamoto not just is anonymous, but could be anonymous and still have this level of effect is actually far more consequential than any specific known identity could be. I think it tells us a lot more about the context and the goals and the sort of historical situation of Bitcoin than if we could definitively say that it was this or that person. <laughs> you guys. And, and, it, and you... It, matters, it, it matters a lot as well that we don't know and like it's anonymous because that's the whole point of Bitcoin. It can operate without anyone in charge of it or without exactly. anyone leading it like that's why it's so brilliant sorry laura that's that's yeah. the only answer i'm gonna <laughs> yes, give yes. you <laughs> i know why you asked but you know this is yeah i was just about to say you guys both copped out but but your answers are they yeah. make sense <laughs> all right well this has been quite the tour through the history of digital currency i really really appreciate that you but you guys both came to discuss it um why don't you reveal where it is that people can learn more about you people can find me on twitter at aaron van w uh, i still write for bitcoin magazine uh, not just write, also do podcasts and videos and these kinds of things. So just on Bitcoin Magazine in general. If you speak Dutch, I have my uh, we have our Dutch podcasts, uh, uh, which is the Bitcoin Show. 
which you can find on YouTube or podcast apps. Um, I am uh, at uh, finnb.net. I'm very old fashioned. I just have a website, but um, there's links to all my books and, uh, and other materials there. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the history of digital currency, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.